Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. Well, thanks to everyone. Uh, it really is uh, a joy to be here. I've admired the Center for Thomistic Studies, its faculty and its graduates for some time now. In fact, you produced uh, one of my best and one of my favorite colleagues, Catherine Peters. So we owe you one for that one. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank, I think especially um, uh, Brian. Brian, when I was doing my doctoral studies at Catholic U, was, was ahead of me in the program. It was very much a kind of big brother figure to me. Uh, back in those days, Brian had to hear a lot of complaining from me as uh, graduate students are wont to do. So hopefully today he hears something a bit more interesting. Um, before I jump in and start reading this, I do want to say one thing. I'm going to forgo the convention of saying quote unquote every time I get to a text that I'm actually quoting. And it's for a simple reason. I have so many quotations in this paper and so many of them are actually woven into my own prose that I think it would be very difficult for you if I stopped in the middle of 45 different sentences and said quote unquote. So I'm going to try to signal to you that I am quoting someone. I'm certainly not trying to pass off anyone else's formulations as my own. If you want the actual paper where you can see everything laid out, where I'm taking it from, please let me know. I'm happy to send it to you. Okay? Okay, so with that, let's jump to it. <clears throat> Sipping cocktails in a Parisian cafe near the beginning of 1933, Raymond Aron spoke to Jean-Paul Sartre about phenomenology, the new philosophical development Aron had been studying in Germany. If you were a phenomenologist, Aron said, you could talk about this cocktail glass and make philosophy out of it. Simone de Beauvoir recalls that Sartre turned pale with excitement upon hearing of phenomenology. According to de Beauvoir, here was just the thing Sartre had been longing to achieve for years, to describe objects just as he saw and touched them and extract philosophy from the process. In this lecture, I propose to do just that, to describe things as they present themselves to us in our experience, and to use those descriptions to think philosophically about truth and about how we achieve truth in our activities of presenting things as they disclose themselves. I will not, however, begin by describing an object as exultant and chic as an apricot cocktail glass in Paris's Bec du Bois Gop Bar in the winter of 1933. Rather, I wish to reflect upon a more humble and homely episode that took place in Hyattsville, Maryland in the spring of 2015. I walked out of my house one day to witness the following scene. My seven-year-old daughter and five-year-old son were on their hands and knees, their faces low to the ground, intently focused upon something in the grass. Intrigued by their unusual posture and rapt attention, I stood silently near my front door, which was elevated five steps above the grassy yard, in order to discover what was enthralling my children so. After a few minutes of intense observation, they sprang upright, and my daughter joyfully exclaimed, you see, Jude, it is a grasshopper, not a blade of grass. You can tell by the way it moves. It was true. They had been looking at a grasshopper, not a blade of grass, and they could see this to be true by the way the thing moved itself. Just as Sartre had done in Paris, I turned pale with excitement. For I, too, understood that phenomenology enabled me to describe and to understand in a profound way what was taking place before my own eyes, out of the mouths of children and babes and up to the reflections of philosophers. With this example as our point of reference, I want to discuss the essence of truth 
And in order to do so adequately, I will continue a still nascent yet fecund dialogue between Husserlian phenomenology, especially as recapitulated by Robert Sokolowski, and Aristotelian metaphysics, especially as developed by Thomas Aquinas. Maybe you've heard of him. It was worth noting, I think it is worth noting, that this dialogue began in some way with Husserl himself, who understood the conversation to be one of complementarity, clarification, and extension of fundamental philosophical insights. In his lectures of 1906 and 1907, Husserl said, the essentially interrelated concepts of being, holding, truth, validity, correctness have been analyzed. The general concept of being that we have achieved is that of onos aliphase in Aristotle's sense. Being is being truthful. Later, in a conversation that took place in 1935, Husserl claimed that it was no longer his mere belief, but rather knowledge that exactly my phenomenology, and it alone, is the philosophy that the Catholic Church can use because it converges with Thomism and extends Thomistic philosophy. Our integration of phenomenology and Thomism will enable us, at the end of this talk, to reinterpret the ancient principle that like is known by like. Before turning directly to the nature of truth, it will be helpful to specify the way in which we will carry out this dialogue between Husserl and Aquinas. My aim is not to reconcile phenomenology and Thomism, or to show that Edmund Husserl and his interpreters are somehow compatible with, compatible with Thomas Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition. Such projects are important and illuminating, but my approach is somewhat less historical and more contemplative. Rather than describing how Thomism and phenomenology fit or clash with each other, I will attempt to use these two great philosophical schools as fruitful avenues to approach an issue of the highest import the nature of truth. I will therefore be engaged in an attempt at recapitulating two approaches to philosophy. Rather than putting them face to face by directly comparing and contrasting them, I'm allowing them to look in the same direction so that each may shed its own light on truth. Aquinas concentrates on the ontology of things, on their being and nature, and secondarily treats of their manifestation, while Husserl focuses on the manifestation of the things themselves and secondarily treats of their being and nature. Father Steve one time quoted Lawrence Dewan to the effect of Dewan saying, you know, for St. Thomas, he kind of thinks and lives in kind of a, I think he called it a heaven of immobility. You know, he's kind of constantly looking at these formal and ontological relationships. And I think Husserl obviously has a very different approach, um, which I think can be complementary. To understand the essence of truth, both of these sides must be discussed precisely in their correlation to each other. It is their distinct but complementary foci that enable us to use Husserl on the one hand and Aristotle and Aquinas on the other to articulate being as the true. Our integration of Aristotelian and Husserlian insights gives us a third philosophical approach that is distinct from each but sheds light on both and that also brings us more adequately to the things themselves, to the topic of truth that is at issue in both of them. <clears throat> One of the most important Husserlian extensions of Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy concerns the nature of philosophical thinking itself. If we are to think philosophically about truth, we must, as Husserl says, achieve a perspective that enables us to inquire back into our subjective intellectual activities that allow us to disclose things as they are. We must reorient our focus in order to reflect theoretically upon the correlation between our subjective activities and their objective targets. We must experience the experiencing of things, and we must look at things as experienced by us. Husserl shows that philosophy is occupied with the knower's reflecting upon himself and his knowing life, 
And he says that the philosophical perspective lies here, situated above our default practical orientation towards the objects with which we must deal in our quotidian activities. Just as I gazed upon my children with wonder from my elevated position near the door of our home, so too all philosophical thinking must take place from an elevated, detached perspective that enables us to contemplate beings and the subjective activities through which they manifest themselves to us. In fact, insofar as I was gazing upon my children in order to see what they were up to, I was not acting as a philosopher. My philosophical excitement took place at yet another step removed from the scene before my eyes. Not an additional physical step, but an intellectual one. And these contemplative activities highlighting the correlation between consciousness and the appearing of things in the world, the philosopher loses nothing of their being and their objective truths, and likewise nothing at all of the spiritual acquisitions of his world life or those of the whole historical communal life. He simply forbids himself, as a philosopher, in the uniqueness of the direction of his interest, to continue the whole natural performance of his world life. Thus, for the philosopher, all practical, unreflective interests are put out of play so that he may achieve the distance from which philosophy helps us to think about the first and final issues and helps us to know ourselves. Before we enter into philosophy, we are concerned with who and what we are, with human goods, with political authority and friendship, and with truth. When we shift up into philosophical thinking, we begin to look at the things we normally live through. We seek to understand human nature, the nature of the good, and the essence of political life and friendship, not just to have or to live them, and we try to come to the truth about truth itself. As Aristotle says, rightly then is philosophy called the science of truth. In this lecture, we will speak about speech, about how it manifests the being of things, and about how beings show themselves to us through language. We will contemplate being as knowable and as known, and we will highlight the human activities of knowing being. That is, we will look at being as the true and at being truthful. As Husserl says, phenomenological explication does nothing but explicate the sense this world has for all of us prior to any philosophizing and obviously gets solely from our experience, a sense which philosophy can uncover but never alter. The philosophical perspective is somewhat rare, perhaps, but necessary in order to contemplate the nature of truth as distinct from arguing about whether or not a specific claim is true, and Husserl can help us achieve and sustain this perspective. <clears throat> from this philosophical perspective, let us begin by turning to the object as a continuation of Husserl's own thinking and method. For near the end of his life, Husserl said, my philosophy always endeavored to move away from the subjective towards the beings. More specifically, let us turn to the intelligibility of beings, to their knowability as objects of human cognition. This is to look at being in correlation to the human person, to look at the world and its human involvement, which is the view of things we must achieve if we are to discuss truth philosophically. What, however, do we mean when we speak of the intelligibility of things? we can find no better definition of intelligibility, I would suggest, than that given by Thomas Prufer, who says, intelligibility is that display of unity and definition and necessity for which there is no better word than idols. As Aristotle argues, the idols of a thing is energeia, the thing's activity of being at work, being itself, and therefore the idols of the thing is its intelligibility, its thinkable look. An entity is intelligible, displaying its unity, essence, necessity, 
insofar as it is active being itself, that is, insofar as it has its form. Eidos, activity, and intelligibility rise and fall together. For a thing is, insofar as its eidos is at work, and it is intelligible insofar as its eidos displays itself, being at work, being the kind of thing it is, and thus necessarily not being something else. For this reason, Aquinas argues that a thing has essay, its activity of existing, insofar as it has its form, and that each thing is intelligible insofar as it has essay. According to Aquinas, just as it is through corporal light, <clears throat> that we come to have sense perception of a thing with our eyes, so too we may speak generally of that by which we know something as its light. Now, Aristotle proves in Book 9 of the Metaphysics that every single thing is known through that which is an act. Therefore, the very actuality of a thing is itself its light. The being at work of a thing, its eidos, is something like its light, its activity of displaying itself, being itself to those capable of knowing it. In a remarkable passage, Augustine illuminates much the same point. He says, yet, though plants and all corporal things have causes which lie hidden in their nature, they do display their forms, through which the visible structure of the world is beautiful for perception by our senses. And so it seems that, even though they themselves cannot know, they nonetheless wish to be known. Eidos and Ergea, forma essay, are not only being but also display, not only ontology but also appearance. The display that is a thing's intelligibility is something like its ontological desire to be known by us. The appearance or manifestation of a thing is therefore not separate from its existence, but is rather a dimension of its being. Yet, we might inquire further concerning the way in which the forms of things, their being at work, being the kinds of things that they are, are displayed to us. To this end, perhaps we can extend the Thomistic metaphor just quoted. In order to specify the metaphysics of form and essay, Aquinas distinguishes between light and the shining of the light. He says that the form of a thing is like its light, and the essay flowing from the form is like the act of shining of the light. So let us pose the following question. If the form of the thing is like a light shining actively in its essay, and this form essay is its intelligibility, its display of its unity essence necessity, then how is it that this light is bright enough for us to see it? Returning once again to our example, how could my children dis distinguish the grasshopper from the grass? How exactly does the light of a thing's essay shine brightly enough for us to notice it? It does so in the accidental features and operations of the thing, in the way the thing's formal activity or first act naturally overflows into accidents and movements or second acts characteristic of that kind of entity. Aquinas argues that the substantial forms of things in themselves are unknown to us, but that they are known through their accidents. He says that our intellect, which takes cognizance of the essence of a thing as its proper object, gains knowledge from sense, of which the proper objects are external accidents. Hence, from external appearances, we come to the knowledge of the essence of things. Just as the form is not only activity, but also display, display because activity, so too the accidents of things are not simply modifications of the thing itself, but also ways in which the thing appears modes through which the thing displays itself to us. We see the entity's intelligibility shining through its accidental features. Prominent among the accidental and disclosive features of a thing are its movements and operations. 
And prominent among these movements and operations are its distinguishing activities. As Aquinas says, we know the substance of a thing from its properties or operations, for the nature of an entity is displayed by its operation. While all the accidental features and activities of a thing will reveal something of its being in nature, I wish to suggest that it is the active ergon of the entity, its characteristic and distinguishing operation flowing from its form and activating its specific potentials for action, fitting for it according to its kind, that primarily achieves the display that is the entity's intelligibility to us. Such activities are first for us. Aquinas claims that every entity is naturally inclined toward operation that is fitting for it according to its form, and therefore, the operation of a thing shows forth its power, which indicates or points to its essence. The form of a thing is a principle of its active being and of its distinguishing activities because the thing's idol shapes its matter towards the operations that are the completion or telos of the entity as a unified whole. And this completion imperfection is the height of the entity's intelligibility. The form at work is what makes each thing, natural or artificial, to be what it is and to be capable of the action for which it exists, the action that manifests what it is. But this ontological structure is most clearly seen in living things. Thus, the form of the animal at work is, what <coughs> is that for which the animal is. The being at work of the animal shows what it is. The form caps, defines, unifies, and perfects the thing, but more ultimately, it lets the thing be in its proper activity. My children came to know and to name the grasshopper by coming to appreciate the excellent activity of the animal. The animal at work is the splendor, the colon of this particular thing, its brilliant necessity. The intelligibility of a thing is therefore not unrelated to its goodness, and its goodness is but the perfection of its characteristic operations flowing from its form. Because the ergon of a thing, its characteristic job or function, is rooted in the nature of the thing, and because the perfection of its ergon is the well-being or flourishing of the thing itself, then each entity is intelligible inasmuch as it is perfect, insofar as it achieves its fullness of being through the activity of the virtues proper to it. The healthy, vigorous grasshopper is more intelligible as a grasshopper than is the sickly, moribund one. The active and perfected ergon of a thing is its brilliant necessity its beauty, and therefore its radiant intelligibility shining brightly for us. Because a brilliant animal, even indeed any brilliant thing, is a good instance of the kind of thing that it is, it, is there, it therefore clearly shows what it is. Brilliance is goodness achieved, and thus nature manifest, or nature manifesting itself in its excellence. Yet, it is important to note that while the ergon of a thing is essential to it, the active expressions of its ergon, the natural movements and operations themselves, are among the thing's accidents. They flow from the essence of the thing and activate its potential for specific kinds of operations. Although the thing cannot be itself or be intelligible without its form, and although the form gives inclination to these kinds of activities that perfect the thing in its nature, the thing can be itself without performing this here activity. But this here activity flows from and thus displays the form the active unity, essence, necessity of the thing. Accidents and, and operations modify each thing, activating some of its potentials, and in so doing, present the thing as active in its modifications. Just as forma essay is both being and display, so too the accidents and distinguishing activities of a thing are ontological and disclosive. The active function of a thing makes it bright enough for us to see it. 
Action is therefore the self-revelation, the self-manifestation of being. As Norris Clark says, since the action that flows out from a being is not simply an indeterminate surge of raw energy, but pours out from and is self-expressive of the whole unified inner being of the thing, both its act of existence and its essence, its action cannot help but be essence-structured action, revealing or manifesting to any potential receiver both the actual existence and the essence of the being from which the action originates. As my daughter exclaimed to her younger brother that fine day, thereby revealing her own essence as a rational social animal, you can tell a grasshopper by the way it moves. Activity makes entities intelligible. I wish, however, to argue that the thing revealing itself in its action is only potentially intelligible. Being potentially intelligible is, of course, a way of being intelligible, and the potential intelligibility of a thing just is its essay flowing into its active features, movements, and operations. The height of its activity in itself is the beginning of its potential intelligibility for us. Intelligibility is, after all, a correlative term. It is an objective correlative, designating the knowability of an entity in relation to a date of a manifestation, a knowing subject. Thus, the form at work, flowing into operations manifesting the thing, granting it the ability to be intellected, but it does not make it to be actively intellected. As Aquinas says, entities outside the soul are intelligible in potency. For the activation of the thing's intelligibility, we must turn to the knowing subject, the human person. <clears throat> While remaining in the philosophical perspective, we now shift to the subjective pole of our correlation. And here we may use Husserl's philosophy to complement and to extend Aristotelian Thomistic ontology. As we will see, it is, it is reflection upon activity understood analogously that enables us to drop anchor on the shore of phenomenology, as Husserl says, in our discussion of the essence of truth. In correlation with the objective potential intelligibility of each entity in, in its form and activities, let us now discuss the subjective analog of this connection between act and form. Husserl says that consciousness is not something like a mere box in which things given simply are, and therefore, objectivity is not something that is in knowing like something is in a bag. Human consciousness, or the mind, is not a container into which the pictures of things are placed so as to be expressed in words and later found in memory. Rather, the mind is receptive and active, and as Sokolowski says, the mind is best understood as a gerundial noun, the verb to mind or the gerund minding expresses its nature. The intellect is not a substance independent of its activity because mind is properly named as the minding of things, the having of their presences as well as their absences and all the complexities this involves. Our reflection upon the mind as the activity of minding things across their presence and absence can be specified by Husserl's description of categorial acts and categorial forms. By categorial acts, Husserl means the kind of thinking and experience that goes on in connection with phrases that involve more than simple names. Categorial speech, categorial thinking, and categorial experience is that which involves syntax. The acts of categorial thinking that animate categorial forms are therefore most vividly seen in the use of language with its dual components of lexicon and syntax. We think things in the medium of language such that categorial acts animating categorial forms are correlated with categorial objects. 
as Husserl says, apophantic logic and formal ontology stand in perfect correlation with each other. Founded upon but transcending our more elementary and more bodily acts of perception that target simple entities, such as gold or a green thing in the yard, categorial acts are complex and intellectual, and they enliven categorial forms on the things themselves that display complex states of affairs. Categorial forms laminate and disclose complex states of affairs or categorial objects that are infected with syntax. A fact or state of affairs, a group, a relation with its relata, are categorial objects. A categorial object is one in which parts and wholes have been explicitly identified and differentiated. It is an object for which we have identified its internal structure and external relations. An act of judging, for example, constitutes or discloses a state of affairs through the categorial form structuring that act, S is P. And an act of collection conjoins the things collected, rendering a cognitive unity and multiplicity through the categorial form of conjunction, S and P. The green grasshopper moving in the midst of the grassy yard is a categorial object, a state of affairs, and it was constituted or disclosed in the higher level activities of syntactically formed thinking that my daughter achieved in conversation with her younger brother. As Husserl says, the judger is directed to something objective, and in being directed to it, he never has it otherwise than in some categorical or, as we also say, syntactical forms or other, which are therefore ontological forms. The light of reason is reflected in and shines forth from words structured by a categorical form illuminating intelligible objects. Husserl helps us to see that the ontological structure of an entity having a feature and therefore manifesting itself in that feature is correlated with the categorical form structuring our judgments. So a kind of classic example that he likes to use <coughs> is a piece of yellow gold. And he says that in categorical evidencing, not only what is meant in the partial meaning gold, nor only what is meant in the partial meaning yellow appears before us, but also gold being yellow thus appears. We might say that the objective activity, gold being yellow, appears to us in the categorical act. In syntactic thinking, the same object I have been perceiving is now given to me in a new way. It is now an object of thought that has been manifested through my intelligent engagement with it. Husserl says that through categorical acts, the sensuous content of the apparent content has not been altered. The object does not appear before us with any new real properties. It stands before us as this same object, but in a new manner. He was a terrible writer. <laughs> I just have to say, I mean, I love it, but he's just a terrible writer. Anyway, um, he says that categorical acts animate categorical forms that shape objects for us. But such shapings do not alter the object itself. We count them only as pertaining to our subjective activity. Categorical thinking does not affect the object thought and spoken about in the way that the majority of human activities affect their objects. We pay a bill, or Brian does when we go to lunch. We cook a meal or walk to the store. And in all such activities, we impact the world around us in ways large and small. However, when we think and speak categorically, now this is a long quote, so this is from, this is Husserl. The new objects that categorical forms create are not objects in the primary, original sense. Categorical forms do not glue, tie, or put parts together so that a real, sensuously perceivable whole emerges. 
they do not form in the sense in which the potter forms. Otherwise, the original datum of sense perception would be modified in its own objectivity. Relational and connective thought and knowledge would not be of what is, but would be a falsifying transformation into something else. Categorial forms leave primary objects untouched. They can do nothing to them, cannot change them in their own being, since the result would otherwise be a new object in the primary real sense. Evidently, the outcome of a categorial act, for example, one of collection or relation, consists in an objective view of what is primarily intuited, a view that can only be given in such a founded act. That's the end of that long quote. Categorial thinking leaves the objects we experience untouched while giving us an objective view of the ways they express themselves in their operations and active features. Animated by our active thinking, categorial forms, or syntactic speech, do not modify the pattern of existence of their objective targets as ontological forms do. Rather, they disclose those objectivities to us and to our interlocutors. They allow the meanings and distinctions among objects and states of affairs to emerge as real for us and as known by us. Animated by act active thinking, categorial forms are syntactical and diaphanous presentations of categorical objects that show themselves in their features and activities. Further, just as the thing known is active and teleological as it searches for its own perfection through the operations proper to it, so too the mind is active and teleological, naturally desiring to move from knowing things in their absence to having them given in their presence. Husserl refers to our subjective activities or accomplishments of disclosure as performances of evidencing, of showing what a thing is in itself. He says, evidence designates that performance on the part of intentionality which consists in the giving of something itself. It is the universal preeminent form of intentionality, of consciousness of something, in which there is consciousness of the intended to objective affair. Therefore, the subjective activities of evidencing are correlated with objective entities and states of affairs. Husserl says that the category of objectivity and the category of evidence, or evidencing, are perfect correlates. To every fundamental species of objectivities, a fundamental species of experience, of evidence, corresponds. And likewise, a fundamental species of, of intentionally indicated evidential style and the possible enhancement of the perfection of the having of an objectivity itself. Evidence for Husserl is both active and teleological. Evidencing must be understood as a verb, as an activity in which we are geared by nature to continue to manifest objectivities until we have them more fully by understanding them, that is, by having them given to us more completely. According to Husserl, evidencing is a universal mode of intentionality related to the whole life of consciousness. Thanks to evidence, the life of consciousness has an all-pervasive teleological structure, a pointedness toward reason, and even a pervasive tendency toward it. Although we can fail to think and to live in accordance with our nature, human consciousness exhibits a natural eros towards the discovery of correctness, and at the same time toward the lasting acquisition of correctness, and toward the canceling of incorrectness. Active and teleological, that is, intelligible beings, are correlated with an active and teleological, that is, for Husserl, evidencing human consciousness. Truth is achieved within this matrix, matrix of teleological activity. Now, if you have the handout, this is now the fourth and final section. 
Um, this section I have entitled, Truth as the Joint Activity of Subject and Object. You'll see one of the quotes there is from, uh, from Father Stephen Brock. And I take that, that phrase, joint activity of subject and object, from a book that he wrote. And I think it's a fantastic phrase. And I was, as I was saying before to someone, it really helped a lot of things click into place for me here. So I just want to make that publicly known. I'm taking that phrase from him. But you see that on your handout. We've been reflecting upon the correlation between ontological form and activity as the self-manifestation of entities and subjective syntactic activity in categorial form as the mind's disclosure of active and articulated beings. It is this correlation that gives us the resources to understand truth as the human person's syntactic activation of the potential intelligibility of things. And there's my definition of truth. When we find the right words for things, categorical thinking enables us to actualize the potential intelligibility of things, to perform activities of truthing. And Aristotle will use the word truth. He will use it as a verb sometimes in the metaphysics. On this point, Sokolowski says that names bring about a new excellence in things, their truthfulness. And he claims that the achievement of language, the achievement of finding adequate words for things and yoking those words together onto the thing through categorical form, is the actualization of the truth of things. We might agree with Aristotle that truth is in thinking, but thinking takes place in logos out there on the things articulated in speech. To actualize the truth of things through syntactic thinking, structuring the right words, is to activate the potential intelligibility of the thing itself. It is to manifest the thing in its activities of self-disclosure, to adequate one's thinking and speech to the things themselves. Words structured by syntax capture and carry the intelligibility of things and thus allow us to live involved in light. This, I claim, is the essence of truth. Truth is, therefore, the joint activity of subject and object, Father Steve's phrase. For him, I think he says it's cognition, but I'm using it here in relation to truth. In our truthful activities, we achieve a kind of intellectual union with things as they present themselves to human experience a union of ontological form and activity with intellectual activity in categorical form. To actualize the potential intelligibility of an entity in this way is to be adequate to it, to be actively measured by it. In conjunction with Aristotelian ontology, Husserl helps us to see that a categorical object does not come about when we impose an a priori form on experience. Rather, it emerges from and within experience as a formal structure of parts and wholes. It arises in the way things can be presented to us. They can become articulated, their holes and parts shaken out, and their formal structure made explicit. If things did not present parts and holes to us, predication and syntactic articulation could not occur. The categorical form, active in logos, is not a mental construct. It is, as Sokolowski says, something that belongs first and foremost to the thing being targeted by our activities of thinking in the medium of language. Jacques Maritain says that language is inevitably loaded with intelligence and with ontology, and thus it is through syntactic thinking in the medium of words that we are able to achieve the truth of things. Returning once again to our now familiar example, truth was achieved by my daughter's syntactic articulation of the moving grasshopper in which she actualized its potential intelligibility by unifying adequate words through the categorical form that gave her and her brother an objective view of the self-manifestation of that sly creature. Further, let us note the intersubjective and conversational setting of her activity of truthing. 
Creativity of thinking in words and categorical form, founded upon and transcending her perception of the grasshopper, crystallized it for herself and for her brother, giving them a shared, objective view of the grasshopper revealing itself and its activities. The appearing world is articulated by speakers in conversation. Logic is carried out on an active entity and within a social setting. When we think actively in the medium of language, as distinct from being somewhat passively drawn along in perception or association, Husserl says that this activity is a peculiar sort of self-evidence. The structure arising out of it is in the mode of having been originally produced. And in connection with this self-evidence, too, there is communalization. The explicated judgment becomes capable of being passed on. The activity of self-evidencing objective truth, of manifesting intelligible beings, makes the truth of those things common and able to be shared across time and space. And the fact that you, or I should say y'all, if I'm going to speak in my uh, native New Orleans tongue, the fact that y'all are thinking our example by listening to this long, drawn-out lecture proves that point to be true. As Augustine never tired of saying, truth is truly a common good because it is not lessened when shared and thus not had properly unless shared. Truth is the intersubjective communion of speakers and the shared syntactic activation of the potential intelligibility of things. As Sokolowski says, and this is a block quotation, the judgmental form is so elementary in our thinking because this action is the simplest kind of manifestation that one speaker can bring about for another, not because our brains or our minds are structured in a certain way. It is the primary move in the conversational game, and it shapes the physiology of our brain and nervous system. The conversational game, furthermore, can be played on the things we speak about because things do present themselves as wholes and in part as subjects with features. The ontology of things lets our speech and our language come into play. Phenomenology is therefore a hendiadis, a one through two of metaphysics and epistemology. Aquinas claims that truth, is in the in truth in the intellect is convertible with being as manifesting with the manifested. For this belongs to the nature of truth. And he says, since truth is in the intellect, insofar as it is conformed to the object understood, the aspect of the true must needs pass from the intellect to the object understood, or derive from the intellect to the object understood, so that also the thing understood is said to be true insofar as it has some relation to the intellect. The unity of intellectual truth and being, of manifesting and manifested, and the passing of the true from intellect to thing intellected, should be understood, I suggest, as the knower's activation of the potential intelligibility of the object known through syntactic speech with others. This passing of truth to the thing does not mean that truth is automatic or relativistic, nor does it imply that truth is somehow to be identified with our freedom or authenticity. Sorry, Heidegger. The intelligibility of the thing circumscribes the possibilities of our truthful engagement with it. It sets its own limits for us, granting certain potentials for truth and closing off others. Within this circumscribed potential for truthfulness, there is something like an infinite depth to each entity, but not an infinite extension. Since categorical acts and forms are founded upon our perception and the active objects that, that we encounter, but do not reshape these objects, we are not free to constitute or disclose states of affairs in any way we please. Husserl says, Great, however, as this freedom of categorial union and formation may be, 
it still has its law governed limits. The very fact that categorical forms constitute themselves in founded characters of acts and in these alone involves a certain necessity of connection. Because we are measured by the being of entities and states of affairs, we cannot really carry out foundings on every foundation. We cannot see sensuous stuff in any categorical form we like, let alone perceive it thus, and above all, not perceive it adequately. Husserl certainly does not mean that we cannot lie or be wrong in our judgments. The point is rather that our judgments are measured by the things themselves. Sokolowski says, we have to submit to the way things disclose themselves. To submit in this way is not to place limitations on our freedom, but to achieve the perfection of our intelligence, which is geared by nature to disclose the way things are. To submit this way is to bring about the triumph of objectivity, which is what our minds are supposed to do. Thus, to achieve truth, to actualize the potential intelligibility of things, is to exercise our understanding and to let a thing manifest itself to us. <clears throat> When we achieve truth, we syntactically activate the potential intelligibility of things, and we are aware that we do so. All of our actions are surrounded by a halo of self-awareness. And when we achieve the truth of things, we are aware that we have those things as they truly are. In truthful speech, our words laminate and manifest the things spoken about, and we see that they do so. My daughter's thoughtful speech was adequate to the moving grasshopper, and she was aware of its adequacy, adequacy to the creature. She had the truth, which means she knew she had it. As animals having logos, we recognize the ob that objects are the identity across their presence and absence to us. And when we achieve truth, our speech is conformed to those objects, even in their absence, and we are aware of this recognition and this conformity. The activity of the mind makes it intelligible to itself. And therefore, in the activities of truth, I am aware of my own act, which includes being aware of its correlational unity with its object. This awareness of the truthfulness of our speech is not philosophical knowledge of truth. It is more spontaneous and less fully reflective, and it accompanies all our truthful activities. We are concentrated on categorical act and form as ingredient in the achievement of truth, but Husserl also claims that all subjective activity both targets an objectivity and exhibits its own form of putting us in touch with that thing. Consciousness and its forms of activity are analogical, not unifical, and the forms of manifold intentionality are correlated with and thus fitting for the kinds of objects they reveal. Because things have distinct natures and thus reveal themselves in diverse and analogous ways, there are diverse and analogous forms of presentation on the side of the subject that enables us to hook on to the object. Each presentational form has its own kind or level of syntax that reveals or constitutes the object in its activities of self-disclosure. There is a presentational form proper to perception of a material object, to memory of a past event, to anticipation of a future situation, to prudential action in present circumstances, to picturing an image, to entering intellectually into a novel, and to grasping mathematical objects, to name only a few. Our subjective activities animating presentational forms are fitted to the variegated forms of things that we encounter or establish through, our act through that activity. And these forms allow us to achieve truth in myriad ways. The truth of predication and speech, practical truth, pictorial or artistic truth, and even the truth of fiction. Finally, part of the wonder of human consciousness and its variegated activity is that it is correlated to and fitting for the things themselves in both their presence and their absence. 
We can be actively measured by an entity's activities of self-disclosure, even in the absence of the thing. And once again, y'all's thinking, uh, thinking of our example in this essay shows that to be true. We can and do activate the intelligibility of a thing when it is absent to us, even if only vaguely. And when we intuit the same thing in its presence, we recognize it as the same thing we had known in its absence. The entity's identity across its presence and absence is given with and in our activation of its potential intelligibility. Included in knowing a thing in its absence is sensing that the same thing could be itself and thus be intelligible in its presence. And intuiting a thing in its presence brings a kind of fullness of knowledge while also enabling us to sense that the same thing could be itself and be known by us to be itself even in its absence. The natural eros of human consciousness to have things given in their presence is possible because our ability to activate the potential intelligibility of entities is not limited to those things present to us here and now. Because the joint activity of subject and object can be achieved in the absence of the object itself, the teleology of human consciousness can be active in moving from knowing a thing in its absence to having it given more fully in its presence all while recognizing the identity of the object in its intelligibility across its presence and absence to us. Okay, so to the conclusion. These reflections on truth as the human person's syntactic activation of the potential intelligibility of things also enables us to develop the ancient principle that like is known by like. The potential intelligibility of the thing simply is its activity of being and its being active, both of which flow from its form, and the mind simply is the activity of disclosing things cognitively in their presence and absence through words and categorial forms that capture and carry the intelligibility of things. Like is known by like should not be understood as physical union of the same material stuff, nor as immaterial identity of known form existing within knowing mind understood as the place of those forms but rather as the self-manifestation of entities in their activities and the activities of the mind manifesting potentially intelligible things in their presence and absence. To continue with our Thomistic metaphor, in cognition, light is known by light. Since we can bring a thing to light only if the thing offers itself in a certain light. Intelligible activity is known by active intelligence. In truth, formal activities of disclosure meet. Our understanding of the ancient principle like is known by like shows that the modern epistemological problem is but a mirage. It is overcome on both sides by observing that intelligible beings appear to us in their activities and perfections, and that the mind is the activity of presenting things by actualizing their potential intelligibilities in their presence and their absence. From the philosophical perspective, as Husserl says, we let the seeing eye have its say, its word while gazing upon two forms of absolute givenness, the givenness of the appearing and the givenness of the object. There is no need for a bridge between mind and world. The nature of the mind is to present entities in their presence and absence and to be open to the whole of things. And the nature of entities in the world is to be active, to interact with each other as they pursue their natural completions and thus to appear to the human mind inclined to intuit things in their presence. Form is not only the principle of being in things, it is also the principle of disclosure in things, and is the principle of disclosure in things insofar as it is the source of their activities, both substantial and accidental. Husserl's phenomenology enables us to look at things in their truth and evidencing, 
This is to look at them in their being. Okay. One more quote here. It says, Form and being are not only thing-like. Being involves disclosure of truth, and phenomenology looks at being primarily under its rubric of being truthful. We may stretch our understanding of the principle like is known by like by noting the correlation between two definitions of truth often quoted by Aquinas and Sokolowski's description of the human person. Drawing respectively from Augustine and Hilary of Poitiers, Aquinas says that truth is that by which what exists is displayed and that truth clarifies and manifests being. For his part, Sokolowski describes the human person as the dative of manifestation, the one to whom and for whom being displays itself, and as the agent of truth, the one exhibiting the natural eros of attaining the truth of things by shining an intellectual light within which beings can show themselves to us. If truth is that by which what exists is displayed, then the human person is the someone, not the something, who achieves truth by manifesting intelligible beings within a community of persons. We come now to our final point. Our reflections on the intelligibility of being and on the human person as the animal who intellects being through logos lead us to the widest context of being, thinking, and their unity and truth. The forms of things are not only active and disclosive. According to Aristotle, they are also divine. The being and teleological activity of things that do not rejoice in intellect or sense perception are signs of the being who is intellect and who is the primary cause of the divine-like being and teleology of things. Correlatively, the form of the human person is specified by nous, which Aristotle says alone enters additionally from outside and alone is godlike. The presence of intellect makes man and woman a godlike animal. For all animals, human beings stand, alone stand erect in accordance with his godlike nature and substance. For it is the function of the godlike to intellect and to be prudent, according to Aristotle. The intellectual activities of men and women are signs of the being who is intellect and who is the ultimate paradigmatic cause of the godlike activities of truth achieved by human beings. Our activation of the potential intelligibility of things is the union of our godlike acti active thinking in categorical form with the divine and formal activities of beings. And it points towards the perfect union of being thinking that is God who stands outside the whole of things and who simply is the eternal and pure activity of thinking his own perfect and divine being. In God, there is not a union of two activities, that of thinking and that of being. Rather, God is his being. He is ipsum esse subsistens. And his being simply is the eternally immutable and blessed activity of thinking. And his thinking is a thinking of thinking. The human person, thinking being through logos, is godlike. While the forms of things, the forms of beings, active and teleological, are divine. And therefore, the truthful union of active teleological human thinking with active teleological beings points toward God, in whom the perfect unity of thinking being simply is the one eternal divine activity. The unity of our intellect with things is somehow an imago of the perfect unity of intellect being that is God's eternal blessed life. In God, who is pure form, pure act, primum ends, intellect and being are perfectly, simply one. For God's being is his thinking his being, and his thinking his being is his being. God is truth, and our achievements of truth both depend upon him and intimate his eternal happiness, which we share by reaching our telos in knowing him. Thank you.
take uh, time for questions, uh, starting with the questions from graduate students. I'll just turn up. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, first, certainly Husserl is going to talk about things like predication, judgments, things like that. So there's going to be some overlap in that sense. Um, his sense of categorial form, I think it, I think what it does, it helps us to avoid, in my opinion, it helps us to avoid two extremes. One is, as I said, it's not an imposition in a kind of, let's say, Kantian sense of imposing a form onto something which is somehow unknowable in and of itself. Right? So it's not falling into that extreme. The other, I say, the other thing it's avoiding, I would say, is some kind of, um, let's say a kind of, now I'm not accusing St. Thomas of this view, but let's say a kind of mechanistic view of cognition, in which there's something like um, an assembly line or something of cognition. So, you know, there's a species here, and then it's moving here, and then, so I think he's avoiding that as well. And I think it's something which, he, in many ways, it's kind of splendidly real. It's a kind of splendid realism. Because he's just saying very simply, the mind just is disclosing things. There are no intermediaries here, right? There's nothing in between the mind and the world, so to speak. The mind simply is the activity of disclosing things, but things are structured in certain ways, right? The thing of the categories from Aristotle, right? Which is really where he's getting that categorical form from. Things are structured in certain ways, and so there has to be a kind, or there is a kind of fittingness. A like is known by like. So the language of categorical form is trying to get to this immediacy, I would say, of the mind's disclosure of being, while also giving you a sense that there's this kind of fittingness, right? Things are structured, things are articulated as wholes and parts with relations, et cetera, and our thinking is also structured, right? And it's structured especially when we get to levels, uh, higher level uh, achievements of thinking, and his word for that is categorical form. So he never says this explicitly, but if you want to talk about the categories, what is the, what's the correlate of the categories? Well, for us, it's categorical form. What's the advantage of that? I think it gets you really immediately to, to things, right? I mean, if it's, I don't want to say it's a shortcut, but <laughs> I think it allows you to see, again, just sort of the immediacy of this correlation between intelligible reality and <clears throat> intelligence. just 
are opinions which might be truth or false. In, in the sense of appearances, how things appear to the consciousness and... Sure, sure. No, I will, at least the way I'm understanding the question, I, he doesn't want to make the distinction between appearance and reality. I think he's kind of allergic to that distinction, which we make all the time uh, in just sort of casual language. Let's say he doesn't want to, for him, I mean, appearance is a dimension of reality. In fact, it's, it's an essential dimension of reality. So he's not going to make, now certainly we can be wrong about things. Aristotle and St. Thomas talk about ontological falsity, where certain things seem to present themselves as like others. So he's not unaware of that, obviously. But he doesn't want, he wants to avoid at all costs the kind of, let's say, let's say more modern distinction between, well, it's mere appearance and therefore we can have mere opinion about mere appearance. And he's saying, no, no, appearance is a dimension of reality, right? And so therefore when we disclose an appearance, that's just truth, right? Now, of course, we can be wrong. And his, his understanding of falsity is that we make a judgment and we try to sort of bring the content of that judgment to a perception. And then the thing, it's, and he's very clear, but the thing itself, he says, rejects the judgment. It rejects it. He says it, it quarrels back with it, talks back to the judgment, says, no, it can't be. So I think it's, um, it's, I would want to avoid that distinction. Now, maybe you're not making that, but at least that's sort of what I heard. Now, he doesn't define truth this way. Let me say that very clearly. I mean, I'm trying to define truth this way. I'm obviously using a lot of his stuff to define it that way. Um, that's not the way he's going to talk about it. And I think he couldn't talk about it that way because he doesn't have that really, really fantastically rich ontology and metaphysics that you get from Aristotle uh, and from St. Thomas. So he's really, la now he doesn't say, in my opinion, he doesn't say anything that would deny that. In fact, he says lots of things which depend upon that being true. He just doesn't talk about it. Um, whereas obviously Aristotle and St. Thomas do. But I gave that quote in the beginning where um, in 1906, Husserl says, look, what I'm doing here is I'm really trying to extend and understand more deeply Aristotle's four senses of being, and especially being as the true. So of course in the metaphysics, Aristotle talks about being as the incidental or accidental, being as the true, being as the categories, and then being as act and potency. So Husserl knew that, and he's saying my reflections really are a development of this sense of Aristotle's, uh, this, this, uh, one of these four senses of being, namely being as the true, right? So I, he was uh, sort of right on the edge of saying some of these things, but he didn't have the ontology and the metaphysics to say it, I would, and it just wasn't his concern. So this is not his definition of truth, this is mine using him, yeah. Uh, Thank you for your talk. Um, my question is related to the first one, and I don't know very much about phenomenology, so it might be a basic question, but I want to know uh, what is a categorical form, and um, yeah. is it the same thing as an intelligible species, the Yeah, well, so this is, yeah, well, now we're really getting to the difference. No, I think, in <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, that, yeah, no, it's not. And if, if you, now, I don't know that Husserl knew this, but I would say this is an, um, a way of reaching this, I would say, is very much the same conclusion that St. Thomas and a lot of the other medievals will reach without talking about intelligible species. So in other words, it's not a, that's not a replacement for, because he wasn't really well-versed in medieval philosophy the way that Heidegger was. So he's not trying to replace that, because he doesn't really know it all that well. Um, he knows about it a little bit, I mean, but it's not like he's setting out to sort of somehow get rid of that. But this is clearly a very different approach, but I think it's an approach to really the same conclusion. What you're knowing is not your activity, you're not knowing any inter intermediary, what you're really knowing is the thing. But he's saying you're knowing the thing not through an intermediary, which is somehow in the mind, you're knowing the thing through an activity. 
And so especially in the logical investigations in the first investigation, he's really stressing the fact that meaning can be achieved in the total absence of an object. Now, why is that significant for him? Because he thinks that anytime you have anything like an image, right? Anything like an image, even if it's something like an imagination, I think he would even say even th anything like a phantasm, he thinks that's already a kind of fulfillment, right? In other words, if you move from radically knowing something in its radical absence to then having some kind of image of it, he thinks that image is already a kind of fulfillment. And then you can have a further fulfillment by moving to the thing itself. And he, what he really wants to stress is that, no, we achieve meaning and we know things in the total absence of the thing. We don't need any image to have knowledge. So he's got a more modern predicament that he's really thought himself out of. So it's almost unfair <laughs> to compare and contrast him with Aquinas, because Aquinas didn't have to deal with that kind of modern predicament. Whereas Husserl did, he thought himself out of it. But no, it's not, it's, it's instead of talking about the intelligible species, I think Husserl would just say, no, we shouldn't talk about any kind of phantasm or any kind of image, or any, even if it's immaterial. What we should be talking about are simply activities, activities of the mind, let's call them categorial acts, which are just, let's say, syntactic activities. The activities which are not just something more simple, like a perception. A perception would not be a categorial act for him. There's no syntax, so to speak, in a perception. I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm touching, whatever it is, right? For him, a categorial activity is one that gives you a categorial form, which is, I gave two examples, the form of a judgment, S is P, the most basic form. The form of a conjunction or collection, S and P. I think there's a practical, there's a practical analog of this too, just in prudential action, right? So he's talking about higher level achievements of thinking. And again, if you hear categorical form, he's really talking about syntactic structures. That's really the, the key. Okay, um, so are they distinct from ontological forms? Or are they something that we create? No, he th we, we, he, well, that's why I think he, he thinks we achieve them. They don't happen automatically. They don't just bubble up. And he does, I gave that text where he says they are ontological forms. I think really if you, and I think this is why Sokolowski is so brilliant on this, and Sokolowski says the same thing in, in similar ways anyway, it's an ontological form disclosed by an activity of thinking. So you say, is it, is it ontological? Yes. Is it intellectual? Yes. It's the union of the two. When, it, when you do it well, it's the union of the two. When you do it poorly, you've tried to achieve something, and as, as Husserl will say, the thing itself, when you try to bring that judgment, that categorical form with its content, to the thing, he says the thing pushes back, and the thing won't accept that judgment, right? Okay. I don't know Thanks. if that's, that's, that's helpful. Okay, Thank good, you. good. Um, this is just a quick follow-up, and it's meant to be very short, but not according to Aquinas or Aristotle, but according to Husserl, mm -hmm. how would you explain animal cognition and artificial intelligence, which is the following on that, um, specifically related to syntax and semantics? He doesn't think... Trying to link it with the, go ahead. No, no, sorry, sorry I finished. I no, I'm trying finished. to link it with what you're saying here about categorical form. I've never read a Husserl. Yeah, yeah. No, he certainly thinks that this is something specific to human beings. I mean, there's... This is human activity. So they can certainly perceive things. He's fine with, obviously, I mean, that's, I mean, he's going to accept that, obviously. Um, but yeah, syntactic thinking, there's a hint of it, you might say. There's a whiff of it in the other animals. But clearly, you know, they'll prefer one thing to another, that kind of thing. 
But he thinks really you only have it when you have human intelligence or human consciousness. Is it because they uh, they can't comprehend universals. They don't have a human soul. Is it does he use language like? He's that? not going to use that language. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's I think that's the same. That's the conclusion he's going to reach. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but uh, this is not. He thinks this is something really specific okay. to human intellection. Yeah. Yeah. I also kind of want to ask a follow up just about the like you know. Uh, the notion of intelligent species yeah, yeah. Uh, in St. Thomas. Um, and the question kind of occurs the way that you structured this is, you know, you've got the sort of on the ontological side, you know, supplied by, you know, Aristotle and Thomas, mm -hmm. right? The notion of like form as the source of, you know, being an activity. Right. Um, does it seem right that, I mean, positing of the intelligible species is because you're thinking about the activity of thinking? Um, and you're bringing to bear the notion of right form as the source of activity, right? Yeah. So, like, you know, in order to account for the activity yeah, yeah. of understanding, well, there must be kind of a form, form that the mind receives, right? Um, it seems like it's an extension of the like, yeah, yeah, you know, the way that you think about right, you know, the, the ontological structure of things, of course, right? Yeah. Then extended into the analysis of the, you know, uh, of the activity of thinking. I agree with that one hundred percent. So is that you know? Um, so when you say like for Husserl, like you don't need the, you know, like we don't need these things. Like in yeah. what sense do we not need, right? You know, do we not need things like the intelligible species or the phantasm? It's a good question. I certainly agree with the first part. Now, again, I, I, I want to avoid saying, you know, why exactly he didn't go along with it. Because again, he, he wasn't a historian of philosophy. He, really, he was a mathematician before he got into philosophy. So he approaches philosophy in that more kind of direct way, right? Whereas, again, Heidegger really knew a lot about the, the history of philosophy. So he's very different in that sense. So it's not as if he's kind of comparing that, looking at that and saying, no, no, we don't need it. I mean, I think that would be just historically inaccurate. Um, I think for him, the philosophical issue was the issue that was raised before. To say that there's a species there, I think for him, he would understand that as saying there's already a kind of, the pres there's some kind of presence of the thing there. And he thinks that we just we just do know things and that we do uh, that we do achieve meanings in the total absence of things. So I think that's really the issue for him is that I think he was so taken. Now for him, he talks about his empty and filled intentions, which is on the subjective side. But you just switch it to the objective side, and it's the thing in its presence or thing in its absence, right? So an empty intention is correlated with a thing in its absence. A filled intention is correlated with a thing in its presence. I think he was so taken by that. I think he was really kind of trying to stress that because the mind does reach across, does know reality, even in the absence of it, there just does there is nothing there. I think he is what he would say. Because if there were, now he says, of course, many times there is. We have imaginations. We do have mental image. He doesn't deny that. So of course we have those. But he thinks those are already a very, very sort of thin but real kind of fulfillment, a movement closer to the thing in its presence, so to speak. So I think that's the issue for him. Now, if you would ask me, as someone who does study both, which Husserl, again, didn't do, um, that's one issue. The other issue is, too, I mean, there, I, I sometimes, the question that I have is, that structure is clearly right for ontology. I, I mean, it's clearly right for ontology. But as you said, then the sort of the shift of that structure into an explanation of cognition. Well, I think that shift has to be explained, right? It seems to me that, that the structure of the, that would, uh, again, it's completely true, I think, ontologically. Well, I need an argument for why that, that same structure has to be now imported, so to speak, into the subject as a way of knowing that. And I can see the fittingness of doing that, obviously. But I, I'm not 
convinced. It's the, again, I, I disagree with none of the conclusions, obviously. That's not the point. The question is, let's say, the mode of getting at the thing. Um, and now this uh, sounds really scary, especially to people who love Aristotle and Thomas, but <laughs> Husserl's got a couple of lines where he says, what we really need is a subjective science of the subject. And of course, you know, everyone who's not, doesn't know what he's saying, oh my gosh, what is he, he's falling into some kind of idealism or some relativism. I think what he really means by that is that we have to have a truthful science of the subject, which is really sensitive to the particularities of the human intellect. And so it can't be for him just a sort of taking of the ontological structures and sort of putting them into the structures of cognition. Because he said that wouldn't be subjective enough in his sense of subjective. It wouldn't be something which is sensitive enough to the peculiarity of intellect, right? And so Sokolowski has a couple texts where he says, really, Husserl's philosophy is a, is a philosophy of, of mens qua mens, mind qua mind, where it's really Aristotle and Thomas, it's being qua being. And there is a tendency, it seems to me, to say, well, once you start with the being as being, once you start with the structure, the ontological features of things, it can be easy to take that, as you say, and use that to explain knowledge now. Yeah. Husserl's giving a different, yeah. One was, let's look at the specificity of intellect in a little different way. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, I think the last question, uh, Dr. Oliva. Yeah. Thank you very much. This was uh, exciting. Oh, it's a uh, Husserl, uh, very different from the one I knew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, almost a Heideggerian kind of reading. Oh, wow. I hope it's not an offense. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I apologize to Heidegger. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> so, not sorry, but yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, I mean, the Heidegger I knew, I mean, the, sorry, the Husserl I knew is uh, pretty essentialist, right? Uh, I'm thinking at the eidetic reduction, which sure. is about getting to essences, right? So um, you presented a more existential kind of Husserl. So the question would be, could you say more about the relationship between essence and existence in Husserl? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I hope I didn't give that. Maybe I did. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I think the whole part about anchoring anchoring these reflections in the ontology, I think, is meant to show exactly how we get at the essences of things. Mm -hmm. So I, I take it to be just an extension of that more essentialist strain of thought in Husserl himself, more of the eidetic reduction. Um, because, again, and I think St. Thomas is just fantastic on this. I mean, how do we come to know the essence of things? Well, he has these great comments. Some of it's a great text, some of that I pulled out here. Well, we look at how the thing operates, right? We look at its accidental features, and it's that which is already disclosing something of the essence of the thing itself. Husserl, I think you can use, as I tried to use, to extend that. So I don't think I'm, I mean, yeah, we have to be active to do it, for sure. It doesn't just happen automatically. It's not, uh, it's not some kind of, you know, sort of uh, biological process or something. We have to be active in an intellectual way to do it. But what we're doing is disclosing, partially, of course, vaguely, but really disclosing the essences of things through their accidental features and operations. So I, I see it as, a, as not the way that Husserl would want to say it, but something like, the, le the sort of most basic kinds of cognition, which would then enable us to reflect upon, in a more systematic way, the essence of something. In other words, if, if we weren't already somehow in touch with the essence of things, then when we reflected upon them, then the way the Husserl wants to, to try to really target the essence of the thing, well, where would we begin? We would have to some, somehow invent or somehow get to the essence for the first time. And that's clearly not think the case, right? We're already sort of seeing something of the nature of the thing 
just by watching the way it moves. Mm -hmm. And that provides the foundation for these, let's say, more specific, more rigorous kinds of, well, okay, but let's really try to give a definition of the essence of the grasshopper. What is that really like? Well, we're already kind of in touch with the, uh, the nature of it, in our, just in our interact, just in our predication about it, and that provides the foundation for these higher level activities. So I want to go. So I don't think it's. I mean, I, I wouldn't think it's an existential reading. Oh, seems okay. to me. I don't yeah. think, mm -hmm. unless you mean by existential something about sort of, yeah, the you know, the person has to be active in order to do this, right? I mean, if you mean by existential, like the scary kind, I don't. Oh think so. no no, <laughs> uh, because you talked about self manifestation of being and yeah, this yeah, is yeah, a yeah. typical Heideggerian kind of term. Yeah, so, but what he means by that is a different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's why I was wondering. I see. Uh, I see. Where. Exactly, you know, uh, that's yeah. who self-located this self-manifestation, and yeah, now I understand that it's basically where he's also talking about abschattung and right? mm -hmm. adumbrations. Yeah, adumbrations, yeah. So, yeah. the serious aspect of perspective yeah. through which something but it's the yeah, but it's the thing giving itself in that right. that side or in that profile. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's always the thing which is somehow being revealed to me, mm -hmm. even though I only catch a partial view of it. So he's really good at, even at the level of perception. He thinks that's true, right? But I mean, you notice. I mean, all the stuff I said about the self manifestation of being. I mean, I'm I'm using all those quotes from Saint Thomas on there, mm -hmm. on those things. And he's got in some. I mean, I could multiply uh, texts, but you know, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, they're all they're all over the place. He uses it all the time. That activity discloses the powers of things which flow from the nature of the essence of the thing. So you've got essence, powers, activities. And so when I'm looking at the thing, what it's revealing is the powers of the thing, which are also revealing the essence of the thing. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's a Thomistic principle. And maybe Heidegger, I mean, again, he knew medieval philosophy so well, maybe he's drawing a lot from there. But I think it's really well expressed um, in St. Thomas. So I, I'm using the, the for that side of it, I'm using the Thomistic more than right. I'm thinking yeah, of Heidegger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I can say more generally. I mean, this is. I mean, sometimes I tell my students, once you've got Husserl, <laughs> then there are two roads a man may take, <laughs> and one is Heidegger and one is Sokolowski. Ah, oh, okay. And so I obviously I think it's clear which of the two <laughs> I think is the better road. Um, which some maybe that's not fair to Heidegger, but I think. The way that Sokolowski takes Husserl is clearly as a way of recapitulating a lot of this Aristotelian metaphysics. And I think that's just the more fruitful and profound way to go. Let's thank Dr. Oniger. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu/cts.